All right, we are starting here a six-week or maybe seven-week. I never, I'm not good at numbers, but uh, a series on the beautiful life. We're taking a break from Luke to focus on this area as a church. We're doing it in our messages. We're doing it in our small groups. We're doing it through these uh, personal devotions. It just so happens that this week we're reading out of the book of Luke. <laughs> so turn to the book of Luke. In fact, it just so happens we're reading the passage that follows the passage that we've been uh, studying the last uh, couple of weeks. We've been in the book of Luke now for, I guess, seven months, and we're up to chapter 4. And we're now up to chapter 4, verse uh, 14. And now I'm just going to kind of set the stage for what's going to be coming in the next couple of weeks, talking about the beauty of God, the beautiful life, the beautiful kingdom. Uh, a couple months ago, I was just getting ready to go on a radio show. I um, was feeling kind of scattered because it, it was about this kingdom, uh, this vision of the kingdom that stands alone, that is not political, but it's beautiful because it, it has a unique Christ-like way of serving the world. And, and I was feeling scattered because there's so much you could say. And on radio and TV, you got to just do sound bites. And I was having trouble chunking it down. So the Lord did me a wonderful favor and made it simple for me. Just before we went on the air, he just said, just show them my beauty. It's not complicated, Greg. Just show them my beauty. Which is really more a matter of getting everything that's ugly out of the way so people can see his beauty. Our primary job as followers of Jesus is to receive the beauty that God is, to be transformed by the beauty that God is, and then to be used by God to further the beauty that God is. It's really that simple. Just show Jesus that beauty. He said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all people unto myself. His beauty is magnetic. The beauty of the love that was shown on Calvary when Jesus died for the very people who were crucifying him, that is beautiful and it's attractive. It pulls people in. Sometimes you can see people being pulled in by the beauty. It's one of the most exciting things in the world. They're not pulled in by religion. They're not pulled in by politics. They're not pulled in by most things. But beauty pulls people. The other week, we had a conference uh, here uh, with 17 reporters from different parts of the world, 15 different countries. And it just blows me away that they want to know kind of what this vision of the kingdom is. And they're going to write about it, have written about it in their, their papers in their own countries. And... Uh, I am doing, I was doing there what I've been trying to do ever since the Lord gave me this word, and that is simply show the Lord's beauty and contrasting it with all that's ugly, which is most things in this world. The Lord stands alone. And as I'm doing that, answering their questions, what about, what about, what about? And I'm just, every question saying, okay, how can I make the Lord beautiful in this question? How can I make the Lord beautiful in this question? And as I'm doing that, you could feel and see it pulling people. Not everybody, but there were some who, they begin to lean forward. They, and there were other people from Woodland Hills, the staff and whatnot, who, who were part of this meeting, and, and they observed it too. Some began to smile a little bit. Some began to like nod. And it was just, I love it. It's like, it's, I, I, I can't do that. I, I'm not beautiful, but Christ is. And if you just show the beauty, it just pulls people in. That's our job as kingdom people, to do the beautiful thing. So I want to title this message, uh, The Crown of Beauty. And I'm reading from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verse 14, which is the verse after we left off last week. Uh, I am not saying I'm not going to go back to those temptation narratives in seven weeks, because <laughs> there's a whole lot of profound stuff that we looked at last week that I want to— but for right now, let's move on. So here we go. Jesus, as you know, in chapter 3, has just been presented as the Son of God. He then, in the beginning of chapter 4, he's been tempted as the Son of God, and now he begins the ministry of the Son of God. And this is really the Magna Carta of his ministry. This is the first thing he says. This launches sort of the theme of his ministry, and it's this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, 
And news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So he went to his hometown of Nazareth, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. This is Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. He sent me to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, yeah. That's what Jesus is doing, is fulfilling this scripture. Now, I want to say, we read one other passage. You need to know this, that in the ancient Jewish world, when they would cite a verse, these people knew their Bibles better than we can possibly imagine. I mean, they, most of them had large portions of it anyway memorized. And when you quote a verse, you're referring to the whole context. They didn't proof text the way people do today, where you rip something out of context. They understood that that is a, it stands for that whole thought in the original. That's why whenever you read quotes of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you need to really go back to where the original in order to see the meaning of the original verse to get the full meaning of how it's quoted in the New Testament. So I want to go back to Isaiah 61, where Jesus quoted Isaiah verse 1 and verse 2, and I want to read verse 3, the verse after the passage that Jesus just quoted. And it says this. Jesus said, And provide for those who grieve in Zion. The Lord has sent me to do this. And to bestow on them, listen to this, a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They who receive this will be called mighty oaks, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor or his radiant beauty. That's what they'll be doing. What Jesus is saying here in this passage in Luke 4 is that everything he's about, the healing of the sick, sight to the blind, good news to the poor, good news to prisoners, liberation of the oppressed, all of that is a, a way of God uh, turning ashes into a crown of beauty and wearing a garment of praise and, and uh, putting on display the Lord's splendor. And this is, in a nutshell, what we are called to do. Now, I want to break it down, of course, a little bit further. And let's start by asking the question, what exactly is beauty? We like to, here at Woodland Hills Church, sometimes get philosophical, don't we? Huh? Huh? Yeah? Yeah? Okay. And uh, I wrote my doctoral dissertation on beauty, so give me a chance to pontificate here for a moment, if you please. What is beauty? The most profound thing I've ever found on beauty, it comes from the uh, great uh, philosopher, theologian, Jonathan Edwards. I quoted him last week. I'm kind of on a, jo a Jonathan Edwards streak these days. Um, and uh, in fact, part of my dissertation was on Jonathan Edwards. And here's, among other things, what Jonathan Edwards said about beauty. Beauty, he said, is a relationship. It's a relationship of, that is pleasing. Uh, a relationship that, that is harmonious because it is pleasing. And that's why he says in a different spot, he goes, One alone cannot be beautiful. Something in isolation, something unrelated from everything else, cannot be beautiful. If you think about it, you'll end up agreeing with him, I'm sure. Think about a beautiful musical piece. What is it that makes a musical piece beautiful? Among other things, 
at a very minimal level, it is the relationship between the notes. One note alone, meh, it's not beautiful. But if you put other notes in it and the, the notes are harmonious, then the relationship between those notes is something beautiful. Or better, the relationship between those notes taken as a whole and you. Your relationship to the notes. Your relationship to the relationship of the notes. That is beautiful. It's your relationship to the notes because if a, if a, if a tree was hearing this, it wouldn't be beautiful. My dog listens to the same music I do, but he doesn't seem very impressed. Uh, but so it's, it's who I am, the togetherness of me in relationship to the togetherness of these notes, and it creates a harmonious relationship we call beauty. So also with artwork, whether it's sculpture or, 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 or a portrait or whatever, it is the relationship of the parts to the whole and the relationship of the whole to you that creates this pleasing, harmonious thing we call beauty. When you're out in nature, last night there was a beautiful sunset as I left the church, and it was, what was beautiful, minimally speaking, it was, it was the, the, the way the sun interacted with the clouds, interacted with the atmosphere, that interacted with my eyes, that interacted with my brain, and the whole thing created this pleasing, harmonious relationship that we call beauty. In, in, in human relationships, it's, it's we, we say something beautiful when there's a relationship that's harmonious. The other day, my, my daughter was, was just interacting with my grandson, and it was beautiful. It was just beautiful, the tenderness, the care, the smiles. It was just, and, and it was the togetherness, the relationship of the mother and the daughter as it's interacting with me. Probably a stranger would have seen that and it wouldn't have been quite so beautiful because of who I am and my relationship to them. That, 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 the, the togetherness of all that was something that was beautiful. Beauty is found in the relationship. One alone cannot be beautiful. A dot is not beautiful. See, that's not beautiful. It's just sitting there. There's nothing. You need a relationship of some sort if you're going to be beautiful. Now, this is, let's take the philosophy a step further, but now we're going to get into the text. This concept that beauty is found in relationship is built into the very fabric of reality. And this is found, actually, in this text that we're reading right this morning. Isaiah Luke, Isaiah Luke. Luke chapter 4, verse 18. Note that Jesus opens up his ministry by saying this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, dot, 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 because he, referring to the Lord, has sent me. And Jesus, of course, is the Son. Here, the first thing Jesus says, at the very beginning of his ministry, we find an allusion to this most beautiful and most peculiar of all Christian doctrines. It's called the Doctrine of the Trinity. Jesus is fully divine, fully God, and yet he's been sent by God, and yet he's anointed by God. There is this internal relationship that constitutes God. And in this verse and in a multitude of other verses, we find this teaching that God is not a singular dot on a black screen. God is not a monad, but rather God himself involves a, a relationship. And God is beautiful because he involves this relationship. What you find revealed in the New Testament is that God is an eternal, unsurpassably beautiful, loving relationship. God is supremely beautiful. In fact, God is beauty itself. A lot of people have a lot of ugly conceptions of God because they don't base their picture of God on, on Jesus Christ. They base their picture of God on some verse in, in the Old Testament or on some life experience or what have you. So they have ugly experience, uh, an ugly picture of God. That's why a lot of people have trouble loving God or believing in God because the picture they have of God is really unbelievable. It's unbelievably ugly. But the real God, the true God, the God that's revealed through the person of Jesus Christ and throughout the New Testament is a God of unsurpassable beauty because he's a God of relationship. He's, he's, he's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
He is beauty itself. The supreme, unsurpassably beautiful example of beauty. Every other kind of beauty we might ever possibly experience is an echo of the beauty that God is. When you experience beauty in music or beauty in art, when you hear Rachmaninoff's theme from Paganini or, or are looking at Van Gogh's Starry Starry Night or, or reading Walt Whitman's poem, A Child Went Forth, uh, whatever beauty it is that you're experiencing, it is just an echo. And it's an echo, a faint echo of the beauty that God is. Some have said, and I think they're absolutely right about this, that, that there is no pure taste of heaven here on earth than in the experience of beauty. One of the sad things about our culture these days in the last half a century, as a number of people have noted, is that as a culture, we seem to have lost a capacity to experience the beautiful. We know what it is. We, we crave immediate sensations, but aesthetic beauty is something that we're losing our capacity for. But if you have that capacity to listen to Rachmaninoff or Debussy or, or to look at a, a, a works of art or sculpture or, or, or nature and, and experience beauty, I mean profound beauty, the kind of beauty that makes you cry, the kind of beauty that, that transports you from, from, from this earthly plane to a different plane, if you've ever experienced that even for a moment, you'll never again ask the question, what are we going to be doing in heaven throughout eternity? You know, you know eternity. There is an end in and of itself, a beauty that, that is an end in and of itself. And to be there in that place, in that experience, is, is to be at the point of everything. It's the purpose of everything. Uh, you, you could sit in that moment for all eternity and never get bored. It's the experience of beauty. God is beauty itself. All other beauty that you might possibly ever experience in this world, whether it's human beauty, artistic beauty, or natural beauty, it is a faint echo of the beauty that God is. You see, uh, Islam can't say that. In fact, Judaism can't say that. Their picture of God is absolutely singular, and they reject the doctrine of the Trinity. So in Islam and in Judaism, God has to create the world to have any kind of relations outside of himself. And God has to create the world in order to, to, to experience love for another. And God has to create the world in order to have beauty, because beauty is relationship. But in the Christian view of God, God doesn't create the world in order to have a relationship. God creates the world because he is a relationship. And God doesn't create the world in order to have love. God creates the world in order, because he is love, to express the love that he is. And God doesn't create the world in order to uh, create beauty. God creates the world because he is beauty. He does it to express the beauty that he is. And in fact, beauty is the point of everything. Relationship is the point of everything. God is perfect, unsurpassable, loving relationship in and of himself, even apart from the world. And he creates the world to express the beauty that he is and in order to invite others to participate eternally in that beauty. That's the point of everything. That is why the creation, every aspect of the creation, on every level of the creation, you find relationship. In fact, and this is a song that I sing too often, and I'm not going to belabor the point this morning, but I find it to be the most interesting thing on the planet, is that Science in the last 50 years in particular has arrived at the insight that, that the, the more we know about creation, the, the more we see it's relationally defined. 
You can't say what any particular thing is without saying what its relationship is to other things. You can't define things over and against other things. You have to define things in relationship to every, uh, other things. And everything in creation manifests that dynamic. From quantum particles to anthills to eyeballs to human organism to the planet Earth to the solar system to the universe, everything is defined as a relationship. What it is is found in what its relationship is with other things. The two go hand in hand. This is especially true of human beings. We, in a particular way, express the relationship that God is. The whole point of creation is to mirror, to be a work of art that reflects on the artist. A work of art that, that reflects on the love of the triune God, the beauty of the triune God. And human beings in particular are created to do this. And that's why it says in, in, in Genesis, when human beings are made, but only when human beings are being made, God says, let us make humans in our image. Everything else was just God made it. But with, with, with human beings, God in a particular way puts his usness, his relationship into it. And we reflect this usness on every level of our being. That's why later on it says in Genesis that it's not good for a human being to be alone. We are made for relationship. Who you are is inseparable from your relationship with God and your relationship with others. We're, we're made for relationality. Our essence is relationality because we're made in the image of the triune God who is a relationship. And therefore, we have a capacity for beauty that mirrors the capacity of the triune God. And it's not just uh, our relationship with God and with each other. It's our relationship with the earth. That's also part of who we are. So God, right at the very beginning, gives us this job description. It's still our job description, by the way. Take care of the earth. Take care of the animals and take care of the planet. Uh, you are to carry out on that level my will as it is in heaven. That's your job description. And then he says, and I'll give you all the plants of the field to eat. Okay, in other words, he's saying, you take care of the earth, and the earth will take care of you. It will give you food. There's a relationship that we have with the earth, a relationship we have with the animals, a relationship we have with each other, a relationship we have with ourselves, and a relationship we have with God. And that's who you are. You are a relationship, which is another way of saying you are made for beauty. Everything in creation is made to reflect the beauty of God. And if everything operated the way it's supposed to operate, it would reflect the beauty of God. In its own way, from quantum particles to the universe as a whole, it would be a beautiful display of the beauty that God is. It would be a mirror of the triune God on an on on almost infinite number of levels. The whole thing would be a magnificent work of art, God's rock Rachmaninoff. But instead, as you know, it doesn't do that. Oh, we still see the glory of God in creation. You still, you know, Romans 1, we see the beauty of God and, and, and all over the place in and, and humans and others. But it's also been polluted, hasn't it? It's been polluted with ugliness. And the way it got that way, can't go into it now, of course, but, but it's because the kind of beauty that we're supposed to manifest most fundamentally in our life is the beauty that has to be chosen because it's the beauty of love. And love has always got to be chosen. It can't be pre-programmed. But that means you can misuse this free will, and that's what angels did, and that's what humans have done. And the result is that we've uglified the creation. We've taken what God intended for beauty, and we've turned it into something ugly. So our relationship with God now, whereas God wanted it to be a beautiful, harmonious relationship, it's now somewhat ugly. It gets fragmented. And our relationship with ourselves gets fragmented. It gets ugly. And our relationship with others gets ugly. It gets fragmented. And our relationship to the earth gets ugly and gets fragmented. And that's why the Bible says in the passage that we read this morning that, that we wear ashes on our heads. Ashes are a sign of mourning. It's a sign of death. A sign that something's gone wrong. And we human beings in this fallen state, we wear ashes because we experience, don't we? We experience 
the alienation from God and the alienation from ourselves. We experience alienation from one another. We experience the uglification of the creation. We know on some level, everybody, even the atheist knows on some level that, that it's not the way it was supposed to be. Life feels empty. It feels vacant. We're not totally comfortable in our own skin. Some people loathe themselves. We're internally conflicted. We can't communicate right with other people. We fear inviting them in on intimacy. We have wars and mistrust and jealousy. And, 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 and instead of, instead of uh, taking care of the earth, we often abuse the earth. And then the earth abuses us back. We create all this mayhem that we have going on right now. The earth isn't what it's supposed to be. Even the, na the nature itself, the Bible says, has been corrupted. It doesn't perfectly reflect the beauty of God. But see, here's where we're in this ashes state, this ugly state, this fragmented state. It's not altogether beautiful. And this brings us to the good news that this passage this morning gives to us. What Jesus is saying, folks, is this. He mentions the Trinity right off the bat. Because he's saying, here's what's going on. This is an ugly creation as it is right now, but you've got to know this. The beautiful Father, the Father in His beautiful love has sent the Son in His beautiful love, anointed with the Spirit in His beautiful love, which means your ugly world is being invaded by beauty. Unsurpassable beauty is breaking into this creation. There is a beauty invasion, and we are here to turn all that is ugly and to turn it into something that is beautiful. We're here to reclaim this creation as the intended mirror of the triune God that it was always meant to be. We're here to, to, take, to, to rid the world of all that is ugly and bring in its place beauty. Uh, God has, what Jesus is saying, and a lot of other verses confirm it, is God in his perfect, unsurpassable love and beauty has opened himself up, as it were, to embrace the world, to envelop the world in all of its ugliness, in order to redeem the world from its ugliness, in order to make the world and make all human beings the beautiful creations that God always intended them to be. We call it redemption from sin. It's redemption from ugliness, because sin is always ugly. The picture I get in my mind, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it will work for this morning, is this. A couple that I knew several years ago used to go to, go to Willow Hills. They since moved to Colorado, but, but uh, they had a great relationship so far as I could see, uh, a real good loving relationship. And, and at some point, they felt the Lord telling them to adopt these two children, uh, these twins who were actually very dysfunctional, had been uh, terribly abused in their earlier years and had, had, uh, had issues that could fill volumes. But, but this young couple felt led by God to invite, to adopt this, these children into their relationship. Knowing that and doing that, they're inviting a long list of issues and problems into their marriage. But their conviction was, and it's true, that they believe that the love they have for one another could now include them these two kids, and that love could heal, begin to heal their wounds and transform them. They wanted to wedge these two children, if you will, into their love relationship, expand their love relationship to now include them, give them a bear hug. It was a way of saying to these children, all of your problems, we're making our problems, so that all of our love, you can make your love. And our belief is that the beauty of our love will redeem you out of the ugliness of your problems. That's exactly what God's doing in this world. The triune God, in his perfect love, has opened himself up, as it were, to include another dance partner, and the dance partner is us. The triune God has enveloped, his, enveloped us in the world in his love, and he's done it to restore all that is broken, to heal all that is wounded, to heal our relationship with God, and therefore heal our relationship with ourselves, and therefore heal our relationship with others, and therefore heal our relationship to the entire creation. The way Jesus summarizes all of this is by saying this. 
in uh, Luke chapter 4, verse 19. He says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Is it hot in here, or am I just getting worked up? I, okay, I, I'm trying to, okay, time for the coat to come off. Okay, he says, he, he's come, he summarizes all of this, this beautiful love invasion, beauty invasion, by saying, He's come to proclaim the year of the Lord's jubilee. Now, or the, Lord, the year of the Lord's favor. The, the, the phrase, year of the Lord's favor, refers back, most scholars argue, refers back to this thing in the Old Testament called the year of jubilee. Ever heard of that? The year of jubilee. It was, it was I think, the craziest thing you'll find in the Old Testament. There's some funky things in the Old Testament. This is the craziest thing. It was the wildest thing. It's certainly the most anti-capitalistic thing. Because here's what God said. On the year of Jubilee, it's supposed to happen at once every 50 years. All debts will be canceled, and all wrongs will be forgiven, and all slaves, and this is the most amazing one when you consider how barbaric that ancient culture was, all slaves are going to go free. The whole year, boom, it's just going to be all debts canceled, all sins forgiven, uh, all slaves are going to be set free. Crazy. It was God's way of, of reminding the Israelites that He's a God of the new, a God of fresh starts. Uh, once every 50 years, he's going to cancel everything. We're going to start over again. Let's start fresh. Start from scratch. It's a beautiful thing. God's showing his beauty. And Jesus here says this. He says, I've come so that uh, to proclaim this year of jubilee. But he's not just proclaiming it to, to the Israelites. He's proclaiming it to all of humanity. In fact, to all of creation. And it's not just a literal year. He's saying, I've come to bring an epic. There's a new epic. It's going to be the Jubilee epic. And what Jesus is doing is he's applying this principle to all of us. Here's the deal. Because of this beauty invasion of the triune God, because Jesus Christ has come and taken on flesh, and he's going to do this ministry and die on the cross and start this beautiful revolution that he came to start, because of this, you got to know that when all is said and done, all debts are canceled, praise God, all sins are forgiven, and all oppression has been abolished. Somebody say amen. All debts have been canceled. See, humans, we owed a debt we could not pay. Oh, yes. And, and we had sins that, that could not be on our own terms forgiven. And we had put ourselves under oppression to the devil and, and all of these other forces that uglify the world. We were indebted. We were in sin. We were in condemnation. And we were in bondage. But Jesus is saying that because of what he's come to do, there's a, there's, there's a jubilee invasion into this world. And all your debts, whatever they are, or however uh, insurmountable they may seem, they've been canceled. And all your sin, everything that separated you from God has been abolished. And all oppression and all slavery and all captivity and all prisoners are being set free. God is saying, I'm putting my beauty on display. If he put his justice on display, we'd all be done for. But God rolled up his sleeves and says, this is a chance, an opportunity. All of our sin and failings are like this. This is an opportunity for me to put my love on display, my mercy on display, my beauty on display, the beauty of my forgiveness, the beauty of my grace, the beauty of my unmerited favor. So it's a new start. It's a new day. There's a new humanity. There's a new Adam in town. All debts forgiven. All sin forgiven. All oppression has ceased. The year of Jubilee. And it doesn't matter what in particular you've been through or done or whatever. No, it's, it's a carte blanche, crazy, insane, blank check written in beautiful, beautiful grace. 
This is the beauty of God. God is unsurpassably beautiful. If you're beginning to get the concept, you ought to be saying to yourself, that just sounds too beautiful to be true because, because God's beauty outruns any of our conceptions. But this is the beauty of God. He's altogether lovely. He's altogether beautiful. And see, as you, this is why the Bible says he's turned our ashes into a crown of beauty. When you begin to get the beauty of God, as opposed to all of our ordinary, ugly conceptions of God, when you really grasp that he is that beautiful towards you, it can't help but begin to beautify your life. I don't think that's even a verb, but I'm using it. Neither is uglify. I love reinventing the English language. It said the devil wants to uglify you, but God wants to beautify you. And when you get, when you begin to get a glimpse, however imperfect, but a glimpse of the beauty of God, it can't help but begin to make your life beautiful. Uh, as you begin to receive that, as you begin to let it in, as it, tra it transforms your relationship with God, and then it transforms your relationship with, with yourself. You no longer need to be loathing yourself as you see who you are in Christ. And that transforms your relationship with others. And all of this transforms our relationship to, to everything else in creation. You're becoming beautified. He turns our ashes into a crown of beauty. Let me say one other thing about this. Why does he call it a crown of beauty? Because he could have just said, I'll turn your ashes into something beautiful. But he specifies a crown. Isn't that interesting? See, I love this. Kings and queens wear crowns. Paupers don't wear crowns. Kings and queens wear crowns. People with authority wear crowns. And see, here's the deal. God always wanted us. In fact, he created us to be kings and queens. He could have created a world that he just unilaterally on his own volition ran. But see, he's a relational God. And, and he, he does everything out of relationship because it's more beautiful that way because you can't have beauty without relationship. And he wants a beautiful creation. So he creates human beings to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. He wants to be Lord of the whole earth, but he wants to do it through us. And it's out of our relationship with God that we then become the kings and queens that he wants uh, on this planet. Well, that's still God's project for humanity. But now those who are in Christ have another job description, and it's this. It's really a, just a, an extension of the old job description, and it's this. God wants to beautify the world, but he wants to use you, not, not just to be a recipient of the beauty, that's wonderful, but also to be the means by which beauty is dispensed. An authority on beauty, a king of beauty, uh, a queen of beauty, wearing a crown of beauty. He wants to work with you to beautify the world, which is why our ultimate job description— can be summarized as this. Uh, find something beautiful to do and do it. If it's beautiful, it's our job to do it. Is it beautiful? Live in that question. What is a beautiful thing to do? So often we get caught up in all these ethical questions and, you know, trying to work it out on a legal basis or ethical basis or, you know, whatever, and it gets kind of confusing. And, and you know, just ask this question. Uh, before God says, is this a beautiful thing to do? And if it is beautiful, then it's our job to do it. It's a beautiful thing to fix up an inner city school. That's why as kings and queens of beauty, we do it. It's a beautiful thing to help uh, kids learn and, and, and to, to get an education, uh, to, to get themselves out of poverty. And if it's a beautiful thing to do, it's our jobs as the kings and queens of beauty to do it. It's a beautiful thing to, to sacrifice of your own resources and, and, and buy food for people who don't have enough to eat. That's why as kings and queens of beauty, we do it. It's a beautiful thing to, to, to work, to 
free those who are in oppression and, and to tear down walls of, of racism and marginalization. It's a beautiful thing to help in the homeless and to help in poverty and to come under people and to wash their feet and to serve them. And if it's a beautiful thing, then it's our jobs as kings and queens of beauty. We're in the crown of beauty to do it. Whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, it's our job to get involved and do it. It's a beautiful thing to come against. All that Jesus came against. We come against blindness. We come against sickness. We come against disease. We come against everything in the physical realm, in the, in the mental realm, in the spiritual realm, in the emotional realm. Everything that sets itself up against the truth of what Jesus Christ has come to bring. Our job is to come against it and to, come, and, and to uh, turn the ashes into a crown of beauty and to turn mourning into dancing and hopelessness into joy. And, bring, and, and when we do all of this, folks, we are putting the beauty of God on display. We become the mighty oaks that Isaiah talks about who put on display the beauty of the Lord. Isn't the Lord beautiful? Look what God's people do. The beauty of the Lord, we're now doing what we were created to do. We're reflecting the beauty of the triune God. You are made to become beautiful in Christ and then to be a beautifier in this world. And we do that individually and we do it collectively. And so the question is this. Do you receive... Do you receive this morning the truth that you have a crown of beauty? It's already been given to you. Will you receive that? Will you let the, the, the truth of the beautiful God heal your relationship with God where he becomes your sole source of life? And will you let that truth heal your relationship with yourself? Can you accept your acceptance in Christ? and heal the relationship with yourself. And then let that beauty penetrate your relationship to all others, your neighbor, your spouse, your kids, your, your, your fellow employee, your enemy. It's a beautiful thing to love your enemy. Therefore, as kings and queens of beauty, we're called to do it. Will you receive that into your life and let it begin to make your life beautiful? And the second thing is this. As kingdom people, will you walk in the question, what is beautiful? And let the Lord lead you as to what role you're supposed to play in furthering that beauty. We, are, we can't do everything. But if we're open to it, God will direct you. Maybe it's being a tutor at Ames Elementary School. Maybe it's helping out with the lift. Maybe it's uh, helping in the children's church. Maybe it's your small group going to a homeless shelter or a reservation or whatever, whatever beautiful thing God leads you to do. Your job is to do it and thereby put the beauty of the Lord on display. Would you stand? And I just want to end this way. Uh, I'm going to end with this prayer. Uh, I, as I'm praying, can I ask the prayer team to come up? And on my right and on uh, your left, um, on my left, there'll be people who would love to pray with you. Is, maybe there's an area of your life that is ugly and you just can't get rid of it. Come up and, and get prayer. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a view of yourself. Come up and get prayer. Uh, that, that's what the body of Christ is here for. That's a beautiful thing. Dave's going to continue. Is Dave here? Oh, he's here. Dave's going to continue to lead in uh, uh, worship. If you want to stay here and worship the Lord, just come up here, kind of gather around. Or if you just want to pray, let this message sink in. Uh, that's open uh, for, uh, as well. So I encourage you to do that. Lord, as we leave this place, our prayer is that you, beautiful God, wonderful Lord, in all of your beautiful love and grace, would just shine on us and shine through us. You've made us to be a work of art, and now you want to partner with us to make the world a work of art that reflects your beauty. 
Give us eyes to see and a heart that's willing to do what we see. Lead us and guide us. Father, help us to rid out of our life all that is ugly, that suppresses your beauty, all judgment, all unforgiveness, all animosity, all self-protectionism, all, everything in our life, God, that is ugly, Lord, help us, Lord, through the power of your love, eradicate that out of our life, that your love, that your beauty may shine to a very ugly world that needs it. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen. Okay, feel free to come forward and uh, go into another uh, worship uh, session. Amen. All who are thirsty, all who are weak, come to the fountain, dip your heart in the stream of life. Let the pain and the sorrow be washed away.